you know the history of what started the Obama great hashtag? No, go ahead. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in, right? So Trump, a couple days ago, posted some... So he's trying to blame Obama for the whole coronavirus thing, right? Of course, as he does. So he was writing some conspiracy theories about um, how Obama fucked all this up, like way before, you know, yeah. um, by sabotaging his presidency and all that stuff. Uh, and so he wrote the hashtag Obamagate, like Watergate, you know? Yeah. Um, and so a bunch of conservatives, Republicans, Trump fans, all these people started tweeting hashtag Obamagate. Yeah. And it was a huge hashtag. Like, it was big, right? And so in response, the Democrats were like, hey, wait, Obama gate? No, Obama great. <laughs> and so they made the Obama great hashtag, yeah. which has been trending for three freaking days. Like, yeah, it's everywhere. I don't get it. It's still, uh, if you still jump in on Twitter, um, like today is the 17th of May and you'll see Obama everywhere. Yep. Um, it's hard to, and like, I remember seeing parts of Obama gate where like, um, they were uh, like uh, the Democrats were ironically posting pictures of Obama in a tan suit, saying that that is the mo- that's the worst thing that he's done during his whole eight years tenure as yeah, his president. one scandal, his the tan one suit scandal, and the Dijon mustard thing. I don't know if you remember <laughs> the Dijon mustard. What was thing. the Dijon mustard thing? Oh, uh, he said he liked he, he went to some hot dog parlor or something, and he asked for Dijon mustard. And Fox News got very mad about it because oh, Dijon man. mustard is a very upper class kind Gross. of Gross, not condiment. my president. No, my president likes uh, ketchup in his hamburgers, uh, his KFC and his taco bowls. <laughs> Happy Cinco de Mayo. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think oh, this romanticization of Obama is like, it's so pervasive in the Democratic Party of America that you really can't escape it. Well, um, so much, well, less so much more than that, right? Yeah. Everyone loves Obama. Here in Australia, everyone loves Obama. And, I mean, I can see the appeal. He's yeah. a funny guy. He's cool. He's, He's articulate. He's damn charismatic. He's so charismatic. He's so damn charismatic. And for so many of us, like, Obama, for me, was the introduction to politics. I remember back in 2008 when he was running. Yeah. That, and I remember seeing, like, I mean, Wolf Blitzer talking about Obama. Um, and that really brought me... Ushered in my political awakening. My dad mm-hmm. was a big Obama fan in 08, and yeah, that's how I got started. Yeah, I remember like um, I was in the States in 2012 during his reelection campaign. Yeah. And you could like feel the energy on the streets. Obama was a huge, huge event, a huge moment, right? And I don't want to downplay, right, the role of the first black president. Yeah, of course. No it's doubt. unfair to do that. Of course, like that is a remarkable thing considering the history of the United States of America and its relation to black people, right? But there's a lot of things that Obama was not, you yeah. know? And I definitely consider great in that category of things. <laughs> we can not forget or forgive the Obama administration and their treatment of the Middle East, of course. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, and talking from, an, like, coming in as politics students, like, I'm an international relations major myself. And just thinking of, uh, like, Obama's influence, it's so pervasive, and his mistakes are still to be seen everywhere. Yeah. Like, his foreign policy in the Middle East was whack. Uh, the way he handled Russian um, influence in Ukraine was mm-hmm. inadequate. Um, and so many other things. So many things. The way that he... And, like, I'll say this, he had a real contempt for the poor. 
no doubt about it in my mind, right? The way that first and foremost he treated Occupy protesters after the global financial crisis was disgusting, despicable. There was yeah. no, there was no concession to them. You know, it was just pure pepper spray. The way that he treated poor people in Flint, Michigan, by being so damn condescending and faking drinking their tap water, <laughs> so they would stop being mad about it. Condescending. Yeah. You know, I think that's where our problem against um, Obama rises move, like ideologically speaking, right? Like mm-hmm. we have nothing against him per, like in terms of personality. No. He's definitely more charismatic than George W. Bush was. Of course. Or he, even Clinton. Course, he's the most charismatic like president that in our in, memory for sure. Probably ever we weren't have. there for Reagan. No. So I think it's important to make that distinction. Like I am sympathetic of all the nostalgia that you have you may have of Obama, like him being approachable, him being like his great smile, how lovable Michelle Obama is. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so important to make that make the distinction between who Obama was as a person yeah. and who Obama was ideologically, economically, and in terms of policy as well. As a politician, as a leader. As a politician. And in that regard, he was really nothing more than a Democrat. Yeah. You know? I think to me, one of the things about Obama is not only his prevalence in America, but his prevalence everywhere in the world as that kind of historic landmark moment. And I think that says so much about the American hegemony over our standards now, our media and our, primarily like our cultural standards. Because yeah. America getting their first black president really is not a huge shift in anything. I don't think it made anything better in terms of racial politics in the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't think it achieved anything when it comes to the actual equality of humanity. When it comes to or lives of black people within America. For sure. I don't think it had any real global impact for the benefit. I don't think it had any good global did impact. It, I think like, did, we need to question ourselves whether we really saw any sort of systematic changes yeah. with Obama's presidency. Like, Sure, it's treated as a hallmark, landmark um, moment in recent history. But what did it achieve? Like, Obama promised a lot in, in terms of climate change. Um, in fighting climate change, we didn't get any of that. He ran on a platform of equality and he ran on a platform of change, right? Like his yeah. whole motto of, yes, we can. Yeah. Like, it was a very populist kind of argument. Yeah. And very unpopulist results. He didn't even get to close Guantanamo. Like, that was yeah. his whole big thing, right? He didn't even get to close Guantanamo. And he talked about getting out of Iraq, and yeah. all that accomplished was like the formation of radical groups like ISIS yeah. and like filling up that vacuum left by American troops. Yeah. And again, these aren't failings of Obama, per se. These are just what the Democrats do. What Obama represents is so much more than being the first black president. Um, It's like the Democratic Party of the American system that we have really, um, that that our real issue here is. I think the other thing is Obama, when he was the president, was treated with a lot of respect and a lot of love from the people. And that love and respect has tripled and multiplied because you have to compare him to the current president. Yeah. And like, when you talk about charisma and articulation, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, <laughs> so you understand Obama where the Americans are coming from. Of like course. When, you com- when you compare Obama to Trump, who is abhorrent, who is explicitly racist sometimes, and he's just, hor- it's a pain to hear him speak. It's tough. He, yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I think you can understand and appreciate and sympathize with the Obama nostalgia that's floating around. Definitely. But that really doesn't address the structural realities of the Obama presidency. Uh, for sure. I think that leads into a good discussion about America. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly, <clears throat> Obama is a huge global figure. 
because he's a big figure in America, because you just can't achieve that much in America. And yeah. that's the truth of it. You're not going to achieve much structural change in America. So having someone like the first black president is their big landmark. That's what they can offer us, right? In terms of actual social progression. That's all they can do. Yeah. And maybe one day they'll have the first female president. The fact that hasn't happened yet is like it's completely bizarre. ridiculous. One day they'll do that and that will be the biggest thing they can offer us. Will America ever actually change? Probably not. And Probably with that never. note, I think it's important to welcome our listeners to the Azat Project. Hey, hey. Hello, I'm Rayon. I'm Moo. And we love to talk about America over here. because we, we love talking about America. Um, but that's not all that we'll talk about in no, this gosh, podcast. No. Um, for like today's introductory episode, we're just going to talk about our grievances yep. um, that we have against the system as a whole. And when we say system, Gosh, it's, I hate the system. it's such a, a big abstract term. And hopefully today we'll walk you through some of our grievances. Some of them. But we hope to give you a bit of a taste of some of the other things we're going to be talking about in more detail. But yeah, we're just going to air some stuff out. We're going to rant a little bit. Yeah, I think that's what this is going to be mostly today. Yeah. Like just us ranting. We have a lot of pent up anger, oh, so particularly much. towards America and particularly towards the fact that Obama's been trending on Twitter for the past couple of days. Oh, so, so oh, much. Oh man, that really grinds my gears. So much. My gears are so grinding. <laughs> yeah, again, I, I don't know like what the actual statistic is <clears throat> or I forget the precise number. But something like 90% of Obama's drone strikes killed civilians. Like... <laughs> He was bombing up weddings in primary schools, you know? Whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. we'll save, yeah. Obama, he's just not, he's Obama, hashtag <laughs> Obama not great. Obama uh, good. Obama, in, in relative terms, good. Obama great. You're pushing. But I, You're really damn pushing. I think that's what, Amer that's what my issue with America is. Because, like, it's always been, America can be understood in terms of being relative, like the American presidency is understood in terms of being relatively better than the last one. Mm -hmm. Hey, Obama was better than George W. Bush, yeah. who was worse than Clinton, who was worse than Reagan. Like you can, and you can keep going back um, on that and find this sort of pattern, like that dichotomy between uh, that we have in our minds. When you think um, Democrat, you think good. And mm -hmm. when you think Republican, you think bad. Yeah. So, um we're leftists, right? Now, what that means, I don't really know, you know? Because it's a very big, broad term. But it's a term that doesn't really exist in the American way of understanding the world. America focuses very much on that, like you said, that duality, right? Yeah. Democrat, Republican. That is the furthest extent of their politics. And because of that, right, someone like Trump appears, and that is far right to the Democrats, you know? Mm -hmm. He is, like... Where the Nazis are. We try to make sense of Trump towards, uh, uh, through the, um, the binary notion of politics that we have yep. of America. Totally. Um, and like someone like Trump doesn't really have a lot in common with a person like Obama. But we try to understand him as a sort of opposite of Obama. Yeah. In, the, in that spectrum. And in the exact same way, when someone like Bernie Sanders appears, to the right, he is the far left in an American sense of ideology, right? In reality, in global politics, you know... Or in just ideological terms. In ideological terms. And, like, it has to be put in the context of the whole world, you know? Because there's so much politics on this planet. Yeah. And America owns the, the discourse, right? They are the hegemons of the way that we talk about politics. In reality, all of the people, Trump to Bernie Sanders, are all just liberals. They all exist within the framework of liberalism, yeah, yeah. right? 
And that is one school of ideology. I think let's push back a little bit on that, um, on the liberal um, framework. Yeah. Do you want to explain on how Trump and Bernie Sanders are still the same well, and why they would be the yeah. same? Well, I mean, to discuss it, right, you, have, you, gotta, you have to understand what liberalism is and define what liberalism is. And really, it's a school of thought that came out of the French Revolution, you know, the idea of individual liberty of mm. private ownership of private enterprise you know the american dream of like yeah you work hard and you can go from like rags to riches um in reality does that really end up working no there's a couple reasons it doesn't end up working and we'll we'll be sure to fill you in on that um throughout our various episodes of course well there's so many examples of why it doesn't work and we're going to try and touch all yeah of them and i'm sure that our like the typical listener would be able to identify a handful just by everyone's heard the talking points we've all yeah. seen the greens memes we lay yeah you know everyone knows what there is to complain about and we will be complaining in detail i guess like li liberalism is an ideology a lot of people you know ideologies are difficult because not a lot of people are aware of what that really truly means. Yeah. In the world of party politics we live in today, in the Americanized world of party politics, your ideology is the party that you align with, rather than the party you align with should reflect your ideology. Yeah, or what the party is supposed to represent. Yeah. Um, I think, like, and I'm sure, like, people would be able to call us out because we are politics majors, Mo, and we sort of have to, well, we're sort of programmed to think through those ideological terms. Yeah. Um, but I think it's such a useful tool to analyze um, the system that we're in right now. Yeah. Um, because when, you, when we look at America, we see ideo uh, ideology um, in the form of liberalism and conservatism, but we can also notice the absence of ideology mm -hmm. that's there in the spectrum. For sure. A and I'm, of course, talking about a true accurate representation of leftism within the American context. Like, one of my biggest issues with American politics is the binary concept of it, that you only have Republicans and you only have Democrats. Yeah. America is too big and too powerful for it to be represented within the frameworks of just two parties. It's too diverse, it's too classist, it's too racially charged yeah. for, two, uh, for two parties to represent all of that. And I think the absence that you can really feel in the American spectrum is like the presence of a leftist voice. Yeah, well, I'd say, okay, so here's the reason that you need to have a leftist voice in a place like the States. Primarily, I think most of the state's issues come down to class issues, right? Yeah. It's like America is the wealthiest country in the world, but it does not distribute that wealth at all. And because of that, you see mm -hmm. things like in Flint, Michigan, where there's lead poisoning in all the pipes. And you're going to see over the next decade or so the same thing happening all over poorer parts of the U.S. because they don't fix their infrastructure. There is not an equal agenda regardless of class, right? Yeah. Liberalism can never deal with those clashes, class issues because it creates those class issues, right? And that is where leftism is an important ideology to consider because that is built primarily on dealing with those class issues, right? 100%. It's a, yeah, it's about tearing down hierarchies that don't need to exist. It's about creating consensual hierarchies where they should exist and removing them elsewhere. I think what we need to do and what America needs to do, or like for our average listener even, is that understand leftism as a response to liberalism yeah. and not as a more extreme end of the spectrum within liberalism. Of course. As totally. we tend to do in the American context. Like, uh, Bernie Sanders is, is deemed a progressive within the li liberal framework. Um, in the Australian context, we don't even have a proper um, leftist um, 
voice in in the framework but yeah. we do make the parallels within the labor party why categorizing it in different ways um but yeah coming back to the american point um like i think it's so important to make the distinction between what true leftists advocate for and what um quote unquote american progressive uh pro progressives advocate for because like pro american progressives will still be operating within a liberal framework yeah. whereas a true leftist whatever that may controversially mean would not be work operating through a liberal framework yeah totally i think that's pretty much where i draw the line about leftism and there's like the joke within leftism is that leftism is all about dividing ourselves as much as we can yeah and calling everyone yeah we hate each other we like to call each other not true leftists mm -hmm. there are no real leftists in the world um except myself except myself whatever i believe is the only true leftism um in reality i think pretty much leftism is any belief or ideology that calls for an alternative to liberalism um although actually i guess that's not true because like conservatism and fascism do do they call for a separation from left uh, from liberalism or yeah i think so like i think le a leftism can be understood as one of the many responses that arose to liberalism yeah. which itself arose as a response to other forms of like or societal organization right yeah. i think that's where we like mu and i both have marxist tendencies of yeah. course and i think the, the marxist approach to history is really interesting and important in understanding ideology yeah because you can like liberalism didn't arise in a vacuum Li and when we say liberalism i think it's important to point out that we really mean capitalism yeah because liberalism is essentially the superstructure through which the capitalists um base operates right it creates the principles it creates the culture through which capitalism can flourish we're not going to go into the details of uh, the theoretical aspects of it but i yeah. think it's still important to um well if you we want to narrow it down to the actual concrete right uh -huh. liberalism being an ideology is kind of vacuous and difficult to look at yeah. but it has manifested especially since the like Thatcher era yeah. in neoliberalism yeah, which is the economic structure that the entire world operates in now and i know you like your economics so do you want to talk about neoliberalism for a little bit yeah um and like um the rise of neoliberalism can also be understood in the historical terms that i was just talking about because history is never operating in a vacuum and yeah. it's always operating in terms of like forces and opposing forces right like a thesis and an antithesis yeah. which sort of progress history um forward neoliberalism really just arose as a response to the more equitable policies that we saw in the post world war 2 era and what neoliberalism really is is that it's a more of a buzzword to define the power that people that have a lot of money have on society right now and that and like the fact with neoliberalism is that that power isn't limited to just people but to corporations as well and to anyone who have capital to who has capital and asserts a tremendous amount of political power mm -hmm. within uh, the neoliberal framework that we operate in right now um yeah and why is neoliberalism bad it's because you can't really have democracy operating within the neoliberal framework totally um we're talking about america and so like in the american context right we see a lot of lobbying mm -hmm. we see like specialist lobby groups who have tons of money and who get to uh, put forward their um political agenda and push it with and cut through all the noise because of their money. Yeah. And what that means is that you're you essentially have an unequal platform where those with money 
have more of a political have more political agency than those without money. Yeah. And in a system that's operating with that within that framework, you can never have democracy. Totally. And like uh, assuming democracy is even something that we want to achieve, of course, for liberalism to manifest, like one of the big talking points of liberalism is the freedom and democracy itself. So I just wanted to point out the fact that it's full of fallacies within itself. It's yeah. contradictory. You it's can't contradictory. really have democracy operating from within a liberal framework. For sure. And I'd say, so I like to think about cognitive dissonance a lot because I think that is like the fundamental folly of human. I think man is a rational creature and man tries to avoid cognitive dissonance. Well, are you making can. controversial statements about human nature? I, well, yeah, you know what? I hate human nature arguments a lot. I think they fall into the naturalistic fallacy where we just prescribe everything to nature. Yeah. In reality, I think what we call human nature is just like old dead white Europeans who are incredibly racist yeah, and sure. did not respect consent or whatever. We're not all nasty, that. brutish and short. Yeah, we're not a Hobbesian yeah. kind of like people. It's all just projection, right? We have to find a way to rationalize our own behavior. And so one of the ways we tend to do that is we say that everyone does it, right? So we prescribe our own negative behavior to everyone else, and we call that human nature. Yeah. I'm not, I guess maybe I am making a human nature argument, <laughs> because my argument is that human nature is a rational thing, but we need to try to keep our rationality uh, clean, pure. Mm -hmm. We can't have cognitive dissonance, or it makes us uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. So we have to always try That's to... That's a fair statement, which I doubt more, like our listeners would... I wouldn't um, call it a controversial statement. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about, like, I guess my own personal history a little bit, right? Talking about liberalism and how full of uh, contradictions it is, right? Because uh -huh. I grew up living in Dubai, which is the anarcho-capitalist dream state. It is a fully privatized system. Well, I'd say the government itself is kind of like a state socialist system, where if you are a citizen of the country, you are provided a lot of benefit by the government, and yeah. you have a lot of... And not socialism in their, like in terms of workplace democracy or whatever, but in terms of kind of a welfare socialism yeah, structure. Yeah, welfare state. Yeah, it's a very strong welfare state for naturalized citizens. I'm not sure what the term is. Um, and it's very hard to achieve citizenship in Dubai. Yeah. If you are an expat coming in, you duke it out in a perfectly anarcho-capitalist kind of system where everything is privatized, right? And you live in the lap of luxury. It is yeah. a very luxurious place to live, right? It is the epitome of neoliberalism. It's a privilege, of course. Well, yeah, of course. There's only two ways to get there. One is you choose to go there through having the privilege to do so. The alternative, of course, is that you have to fill up the slave class. Yeah. And Dubai can only exist as a dream state as long as it has a slave class. That, to me, is one of the biggest inherent contradictions of liberalism, is that you can get luxury. You can get goodness out of it as long as there's someone else suffering under you to provide that for you. You can't have equity in liberalism because it needs people to be on the bottom, doing the work, at risk of going homeless or hungry. Yeah. If there's not that risk and if there aren't homeless people to act as a threat, you can't get those luxuries out of liberalism. Yeah, right? and again, we, we're really just using liberalism as an encompassing term for capitalism, capitalism as a whole. Capitalism these are all yeah. manifestations of each other in different ways. Yeah. Uh, they're all like different categories for talking about the same kind of processes, right? Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about your upbringing in Dubai, yeah. because I'm from Bangladesh, born and raised, uh, grew up there, and it's a much more different reality um, than that that you, uh, you have seen in Dubai. 
um, for one, because a lot of the slave class in Dubai was made from migrant Bangladeshi workers who did not get to live in the luxury villas or like spend a night at Burj Al Arab because they were yeah. slaving away building those villas in um, luxury hotels, right? Um, in Bangladesh, I think it's a really, in, like my upbringing was also from a place of privilege where I got to see, where I got to um, experience a good life. I didn't have to work hard. There were, and like, you get to indulge in a lifestyle of privilege by just by a, a, the virtue of being born into it, right? Yeah. Um, but I got to see the exploitation that exists in the society as Bangladesh transitions into cap capitalism, right? Bangladesh has historically been a feudal, uh, a feudalist country where, where it has mostly been, it has been an agrarian based society, right? But it is transitioning into capitalism. And you can see, because we have more of a manufacturing sec sector now, you see like a lot of the clothes that we wear is made in Bangladesh. And one of the reasons that's happening, or uh, one of the reasons Bangladesh is transitioning into capitalism is because of the neoliberal forces that are taking over the world. Mm -hmm. Because of looser reg labor regulations and cheaper wages in Bangladesh, countries are shifting, uh, companies are shif um, shifting from America and the West into Bangladesh. Um, to, yeah, okay. for their orders and manufacturing. The West is exporting their capitalist model into like the poorer countries like Bangladesh and mm -hmm. essentially transitioning it into the capitalist um, into a capitalist system. And you can see the pitfalls of capitalism like we see here in the West slowly arise in Bangladesh. Um, and also in the other poorer countries, which is really interesting um, for me to be seeing, like now that I'm living in Australia, which is a late stage capitalist society, yeah. and like my other life is in Bangladesh, which is in the earlier um, stage of development of capitalism. But I think you can really trace it back for countries like Bangladesh and like um, Pakistan yeah. and India and all that to colonialism. Mm -hmm. Like that's where our experience with capitalism and exploitation from the West really began, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, well, Mu and I are both children of colonial, um, uh, ch uh, products of colonialism, and our like very existence is a legacy of that. Yeah, 100%. Uh, um, yeah, colonialism isn't really just limited to the Brits going into um, South Asia, going into India, and extracting all the resources that this uh, that the continent had to offer. It's more of like the role that colonialism has played, right? Like colonialism has to be understood as a projection of Western values into like um, across uh, across the world. So I was listening to this take yesterday on cultural genocide, yeah. you know, as distinct from just straight up massacring population. Because colonialism, right, it has a, a dangerous legacy that led to modern day capitalism, you know, the movement of resources, the exploitation of a cheap, disenfranchised workforce then manifested into neoliberalism which then has manifested into neocolonialism right yeah where you don't have states actively kind of controlling other states and the population of them and whatever but rather what you have is a form of dependency right? a form of dependency and on top of that you're creating an incentive structure for them to get rid of their own cultural identity so for instance if you are a Bangladeshi working in uh, for an American firm or whatever and you want to not just be working kind of in the labor force of it, but you kind of want to have some agency in the way that the company is, is run or whatever. Uh -huh. in, the, in the rare situation that you're even capable of getting to that position, you need to learn English. You have to learn American etiquette. You have to 
go to America, yeah. go to an American school. Like and like, right? for, I know that from my Pakistani culture, that is the dream, right? Your parents want you to go to an American university yeah. and become an assim- assimilate yourself into American culture. That is success, right? To me, that is one of the most dangerous parts of neoliberalism and neocolonialism is it incentivizes you to get rid of what makes your identity important. You have to assimilate yeah. into a American context to have any chance of success, right? And I think that's something anyone um, who's not operating from a European background or a Western background, like if you're a ch- uh, if you're an immigrant or if you're a child of an immigrant, you're gonna have that certain sense of internalized racism yeah. that you have to have to operate within this um within this western hegemonic world or like if you're living in australia you have to constantly grapple with like the uh, colonial legacy that has shaped this country oh, for sure. um and like you're just your whole identity becomes based on this conflict and like yeah it's just really difficult to operate in this system yeah and yeah it really makes you wonder like what are what are the steps out you know how do we undo what has been done or how do we effectively undo it? You know, because there's no way we can go back now. Yeah. So what is the path forward? How do we really shape our future in a way that represents where it should be rather than where it is now and where this is going to lead us? Because if you ask me where this is going to lead us, it's going to lead us to the absolute destruction of our planet. Yeah. We see that with all the climate catastrophe stuff. We see that in the fact that under neoliberalism, we're constantly blaming personal responsibility for causing climate change. Yeah, the fact that veganism um, is such is like taunted sometimes, but it like it's uh, proposed as a legitimate option to battle climate change. Yeah. It really isn't, right? Like if we just talk, keep talking about the climate change issue, right? It's a systematic issue. Yeah. It, like the the planet is not dying because you are drinking milk and you st- or you're are using too many plastic cups y- or whatever. Yeah, it's not you that's the problem. It's the system that's the problem. Yeah. Like I have tremendous respect for the vegans, yeah. but like if the whole world decides to go up to embrace veganism it wouldn't really um solve the well, the whole world wants to do it it would be a good chunk you know it would be. but in reality of course like it is not a consumption issue yeah yeah you're that's right. not the world that we live in right our consumption is not what's causing climate change it is purely a production and distribution issue and rather like actually might push back on that because like the fact that our like the, our consumption is part of it because we live in a consumerist society, which is a product of the late-stage capitalist um, system that we operate within, yep. right? Like, the only re- reason personal consumption, like, the only reason beef is causing climate change is not because cows are inherently bad. It's because cows have been commodified to a certain degree and that we have been programmed to consume cows to that degree to the point where the planet is dying because yep. of it, right? For sure. Mass production of yeah. methane production. Um well, okay, let's go on from here. I think that was a good look at kind of how we got to where we are. Um, I'd like to talk about where we're going to go from here, but maybe one more kind of stop on the historical tour, because I want to talk about Bernie Sanders for a little bit. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I, not talk about Bernie Sanders. Yeah, we can't not talk about Bernie Sanders. I feel like we're a little bit late to the party, um, because well, he dropped out, like, was it like... March? Time doesn't really Time? mean much anymore. It doesn't really exist, but so it doesn't I, really matter. Super Tuesday was early March, so sometime around then. Sometime around then, right? So let's talk about 2016, yeah? Because mm-hmm. I feel like that was a damn pivotal year for the whole world, right? I know it was for me. Yeah. Because until 2016, I would consider myself to be apolitical 
or a centrist. I was very much a both sidesist because both sides were just always shouting at each other. The far left and the crazy SJWs and the far right and the neo-Nazis just shouting all the time. And I wanted to find a good compromise. You know, that was what it was all about, a logical, rational compromise. Yeah. Bernie Sanders was the first person I'd ever heard speak that was not arguing from a purely liberal mindset. He was offering me an alternative to liberalism. He was speaking in terms of class, right? Which I had, which I had never really had to deal with before. The idea of class and what that really means. The inheritance of class, you know? Yeah. The doom that you're going to face. Because I didn't, I did not grow up with any kind of class struggle. I grew up in the lap of luxury, right? Yeah. Silver spoon. Bernie Sanders was such an important, pivotal moment for me because it opened up my politics to beyond that American dichotomy of Democrat and Republican. He was an independent. He was a socialist, right? Mm -hmm. A democratic socialist. And as I've developed my leftiness, I have found that he's not really a leftist. Like, or at least Bernie Sanders is a candidate. Bernie Sanders is a man. is most definitely a leftist, I reckon. Yeah. Bernie Sanders is the democratic socialist candidate for American president. He's not a leftist. He's a liberal. But he is as far left of a liberal as one could get. I think there's an important thing to recognize in that. In that Bernie Sanders, now I look at him, back then I looked at him as the ideal. You know, what he was saying was the goal. And now I look at him and I'm like, he's, he's, he's our compromise, right? Yeah. Because I've, I've grown to learn that the vote is not what's going to bring change. Your democracy is not going to bring change, right? Because as we talked about before, it's easy to influence democracy if you have the lobbying power. If you have the money, your agenda is more important than the vote. So the vote isn't going to be the solution to dealing with those people because it is the people who have the agenda of setting power that I, are the problem, right? Yeah. I think Bernie Sanders is, like, to a certain degree, like Obama, in that he is more of a symbol um, than he is a person, at least how he's treated in mainst mainstream um, discourses, right? Um, like, what he represents in the American context is something that's very foreign um, within the American framework, uh, the binary American framework, right? Yeah. But as you said, Mu, he is, like... He like even with his radical tendencies, uh, Bernie at the end of the day can still be categorized as a liberal because he's choosing to operate within the liberal framework. Yeah. And I think at least how I personally uh, like to understand the failure of the Sanders campaign is kind of because of that. Like he tried to push um, that limited liberal framework of the American um, system to its maximum. Like, and even though we can both agree that he was the concession, that's not a concession that li the liberal system is willing to make. Yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders was by far the most rational candidate that the Democratic um, Party had amongst like a convoluted field of 20 um, oh, so candidates, right? Like, I mean... Uh, most people would agree on that. Even those who don't, um, who aren't Bernie Bros, yeah. even on the, uh, even some of the Biden supporters would like see the appeal of Bernie's policies, but they would reject him as being too much of an idealist, or like reject him for the stereotype of being a socialist, yeah. um, of the socialist label being associated with him. Um, I think that is one of the issues that I have with Bernie Sanders um, is that he's not really a true leftist. Yeah. But the other thing to but say, what does right? What it really mean to be a true leftist move? When we, well, you said before, kind of the like attributing like the failures of the Sanders campaign, and I think there were many failures of the Sanders campaign. Uh -huh. But in reality, I think to say that there were failures implies that there was ever a chance of success, right? Yeah, you're right. And one of the things that I've been very upset with myself about 
was how much hope I allowed myself to get out of Bernie Sanders. Oh, man. Especially in this 2020 run. Now that I have leftified a little bit, you yeah. know? It should have been apparent to me from day one that America, <laughs> the United States of America, yeah. was never going to have a democratic socialist president. It was never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And I understand that because I felt it as well. The naivety yeah. with which we all just embraced uh, Bernie Sanders as our Lord and Savior. Um, it's just the audacity of hope that we had within yeah. ourselves. It's just bizarre. It was a silly... It was. It's silly. It I is back, silly. And, and it's I, important to call ourselves out on yeah, it. Yeah, it's naivete. I, that's how I like have, have kind of come to terms with it. It was a, a hopeful naivety, but we need to accept that's not, you know, it was never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden was, uh, I'd say, always, always going always always to be Joe Biden, right? And that's so frustrating um, because, um, like, both Moo and I are big followers of American politics if you haven't made that out yeah. um, yet. And reality, I think... Almost most people who have any kind of political awareness just have to gravitate towards American politics. Yeah. The argument can be made that, of course, we have to because they are the global superpower. In reality, I, it's just because they control all the media. Yeah. They, you know, when it, especially us coming from international environments. Uh-huh. I was very disenfranchised from Pakistani politics, even though I'm a Pakistani. And since I'm an Australian, I was even disenfranchised from Australian politics. Yeah, and for, so, for all me, I, I went into an international school system when I was in Bangladesh. So, like, most of the media and entertainment that I was interacting with was the Western. And when I say Western, it's all just American. Yep. So, like, I mean, both of us have more of an Americanized perception of the world, yep. which is difficult to isolate um, our other thoughts from, right? For sure. American... Americans have the hegemony over our discourse, without a doubt. Uh-huh. All of our talking points are from an American context almost, right? Bernie Sanders, he means something in Australia, you know, where we are. And uh-huh. he shouldn't because he's not an Australian politician. But he means something here. He'll mean something throughout Europe, you know. And in Europe, he usually just means a normal politician <laughs> um, because yeah. he's not a radical leftist in, in a European context by far, even in more conservative European states. Yeah. Going straight back to the thing we said at the beginning, the American dichotomy of politics has just taken over the entire world and that's why there's so much misrepresentation of the left they have not in america yet figured out how to draw the line between liberals and leftists because to them there really is no distinction if you are a liberal you are to the left because it's all a relative position yeah right and i hope that so far from our conversation we've been able to represent the differences between leftism and liberalism and how they're ideologically fundamentally different principles. Yeah. You cannot be a liberal leftist. Yeah. And that's, I want to talk a bit about yeah. today's political discourse. I came from a very digital culture. I was a third culture kid, right? I didn't, I grew up in Dubai, but I'm an Australian citizen, but I have Pakistani ethnicity. And I never really related to any of those cultures. And I think that's true for a lot of people uh, who have grown up on the internet. So I found culture through the internet. But the internet, was not nearly as welcoming a place when I started using it as I'd say it is now, where it has become a hub of activism and feminist voices, trans voices, where it's become a place for people to share opinions that are not really accepted within the mainstream uh-huh. from a leftist... You have so many subcultures within the yeah, internet now. Yeah, totally. Back when I started using the internet, it was pretty much primarily just for edgy boys. Um, <laughs> It was a way to propel toxic masculinity over and over again, to make fun of people who had any kind of political agenda whatsoever, unless it was a rightist political agenda. If you were advocating and actively being an advocate for 
then you were being political and you were a villain. You're an enemy, right? That was, yeah. that was the culture I grew up in on the internet. Anyway, the reason that culture existed is because of that lack of distinction between leftism and liberalism. What you end up seeing a lot in those circles are the same reused memes and videos and whatever, the same talking points and jokes of like trans advocates being upset at a lecture for saying something and then they all call them out for free speech or whatever. That's like the usual thing, right? Yeah. Like someone says something controversial, someone gets upset about it, and then they say, oh, the left hates free speech. In reality, there's a huge distinction between leftist advocates and progressive liberal advocates. Here's where I find the danger in all that, right? Yeah. L the lack of distinction means that people who are liberals, who have socially conscious inclinations and whatever, who want to achieve actual justice for groups that are marginalized, they don't know how to actually achieve that. So they end up pushing for liberal progressive beliefs, right? Which usually means a seat on the table kind of thing. Yeah. They want to have representation on the media, in television, you know? More gay characters, or more black female security guards, or cops, or whatever. Uh-huh. That's why they voted for Clinton. That's why they voted for Clinton. That's why a lot of them are K-Hive. You know, they love Kamala Harris, uh -huh. and they want Kamala Harris to be Joe's VP. I understand that, you know? When you look at it from that edgy, slightly right perspective, it's all just representation politics. That doesn't achieve structural change, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about how do we get as many of these people in our social consciousness without actually achieving anything for them? What I call empathetic inefficiency, right? It's about these people who are very empathetic and they have a lot of emotional energy, but they just expend it in pointless... And I don't want to say that representation is meaningless, uh -huh. because of course that's not true. It's important to have media representation. Yeah, of, it has real impact on the lives of people. It right? has real impact on people. When it comes to creating real structural changes, I don't think that the link there is as strong as people make it out to be. I think that's what my issue with the liberal approach to politics is, at least the progressive um, liberal approach that we see in America, right? Um, they fail to evaluate the structural issues that exist in the current system. Yeah. And because, like, when you fail to do that, you can't really solve the problems that are at the root of all the issues that we see today. Like, a lot of the issues that we see um, in um, our society right now, inequality, like the gender pay gap, they don't really have to be a thing anymore. Yeah. Right, we have the resources, we have the economic base to overcome all of this. But it is an active choice by those in power to not do so. Yeah. And I think that's where that's a big uh, distinction between the leftist approach to politics and the liberal approach to politics, I'd say. Because leftism is about toppling all of these um, exploitative top down hierarchies that exist in like the capitalist societies that we live in today. And these exploitative, uh, exploitative hierarchies can be seen everywhere. Yeah. For me, um, any proper leftist approach to politics would begin with that. Yeah. Would begin with an attack on these exploitative hierarchies that exist. It's funny, right? Because liberalism came out of the French Revolution, right? Uh -huh. uh, which was, a, a, it was society saying, finally, that we are done with oppression. We are done with a monarchy. We're done with sole individual sovereignty over all of us people, right? And yet, our current liberalism is so scared of reappropriation, of taking from the people who have oppressive power and returning it to the people who don't. Really, like, the liberalism of today is so distinct from what was meant to have come out of the revolution, right? We took all that uh, revolution philosophy that we picked up from the French Revolution and that we've been applying all over the world in, during the 19th century, 
we took that philosophy of no more monarchs, no more sovereignty, sorry, no more individual sovereigns, more spread sovereignty, and instead we created this neoliberal model where we have global monarchs, where we have CEOs who have so much more power than the monarchs of the olden days, who are, they're not restricted by borders, you know? Yeah. Borders are a huge part when it comes to what a nation state is. But our current monarchs, like Emperor Jeff Bezos, they don't exist within borders, right? They have so much more power than an old monarch used to have. Yeah. The fact that we have bastardized revolution philosophy so much in this new neoliberal model, it's just one of those other contradictions that have come out of liberalism. So, I mean, as we can see, like, from the failing of the French Revolution, because it did fail. Yeah, you know, it, I think it shows us how important it is that there is some unity in the approach that we take into revolution or into change in general, right? Yeah. Because I think we can draw a line to say who's not a leftist. But within what are leftists, we still have very little consistency in what we believe to be the true path forward, right? Yeah, I think that sort of relates more to what you were saying about um, everyone in the left hating each other, right? Yeah. Because there's, um, it's very important to not draw a homogenous understanding of the left because we're so different um, and like so it's really difficult for the two of us to define the left as a whole yeah. and to define the leftist approach to politics because it's so diverse within it uh, because like Antifa is the left but also like the Chinese Communist Party is supposed to be the left Stalin's too. The left. Stalin's a lefty. And so is uh, Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro. Kim Jong-un too. So yeah. like... Uh, uh, yeah, um, and then like more locally in Melbourne, we've got Socialist Alternative yeah. and like um, Solidarity and their approaches to leftism is different as well. Yeah. But I think the main difference that we can draw um, within leftism and sure in liberalism as well is how it is whether your approach to the capitalist system or liberalism as a, a political mechanism is your goal to reform it or is your goal to fundamentally change it? Yeah. And what I mean by that is reform would be working. So like, bear with me here, Mu, um, as I go into uh, the little structuralist aspects of it, right? For reform um, to occur, reform fundamentally occurs within the structural limitations of a system, right? Where, um, so what that would mean is for, a, for uh, within the liberal context, uh, for uh, the context of liberalism, reform would just mean democracy or electoral politics as we yeah. see unfold in Australia or in America. The limitation of reform in the American context is the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign. The fact that Bernie couldn't get elected even though he was the best choice yeah. or that uh, like the American field wouldn't allow for him to get um, elected uh, because of him not being in the system's best interest. Yeah, and I'll speak a little bit on like what that manifests like, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of different ways that happens. One, of course, you have the lobbying thing that we talked about when it comes to agenda setting. The other thing is the media. You know, the media as an institution uh -huh. is controlled by elite classes more than they are by lower classes. Yeah, just Murdoch. We've all read our Chomsky. Um, the media is an effective tool for, for creating... Or Chomsky Broskis, right? The media is an effective tool for creating consensus, right? It makes you believe that you believe what everyone else believes. In reality, that's never really true, right? It's very uh -huh. distinct from what most people believe. One of the failings of Bernie Sanders' campaign was he was not appealing to media elite. 
And it's not really a failing of his campaign. That is his campaign. He does not want the elite yeah. to... He does not want to appeal to them. Because of that, the media did not represent him in a good light, if they even represented him at all. I think it's interesting to bring in Elizabeth Warren in this discussion as yeah. well. Because I think we can... Un- like. We can illustrate our point using, uh, like, dichotomizing the two of them, right? Warren's whole spiel to, and whole approach to politics was that she wants to fix American capitalism, yeah. right? She wants to make it work in a way that would be that would address inequality, that would um, will, like, give universal health care. Um, yeah, well, she said that to start off with. I mean, yeah, all that, right? So, like, she was gonna use capitalism as a tool and operate within the frameworks of capitalism to essentially change it for the better. Sure. On the other hand, we have Sanders, who is operating on a more radical platform, at least in um, in rhetorical terms, right? Because he was talking about. Uh, what can be categorized as a revolution of a certain way, but like we'll talk about how it really wasn't a revolution. No, of course. Um, but like his whole rhetoric was about fundamentally changing the system of American politics, the way the country is organized. Yeah. And I think like this is where we can depart from our comparisons because this provides us with two approaches to politics. Right? One is the Warren model, where we reform the capitalist system from within itself, from within itself and yeah. use the, lim- the like the structures. And and the mechanisms that it provides us to uh, better better it. Yeah, Yeah, improve it, reform it. Reform it, it. yeah. Um, And then, uh, on the other hand, we have the more radical option. Yeah, the Sanders model. The Sanders model. I mean, the Sanders model was not a revolutionary model per se, Uh but rather, I guess, more of like a vanguard kind of model. In the sense of, I think what Sanders was really hoping to achieve was not the revolution that we talk about, but rather trying to ease the things that prevent it from occurring, right? Yeah. He wanted to give more bargaining power to the workforce so they could bargain with their uh, bosses, right? Yeah, like limit the hierarchy. And yeah, reduce the hierarchy. Yeah, that was his whole model. Yeah, and I think this is... I'm hesitant to call this approach the revolutionary model. It's a proto-revolutionary. Yeah, it doesn't... Because it doesn't necessarily have to result in a revolution. It's any approach that isn't operating within the structural limitations of the yeah. liberal capitalistic model. And can I provide a bit of analysis yeah, here? Yeah, of course. Um, Bernie Sanders provided this model that was explicitly against the elite class because it threatened them from outside, right? Because of that, his representation in the media was incredibly biased, it was damaged, he was always made out to be weaker than he was at every moment, right? His fan base was always diminished or made very toxic, right? The whole Bernie bros rhetoric. An alternative, you have someone like Warren who appears, who has, I will say, a very bad past in politics. I don't think she has a very proud past in politics. I'm not going to forget that she faked being Native American uh, yeah. and stole like Harvard <laughs> positions from actual Native Americans. It's bizarre. She's, She's the on first the board. woman of color that Harvard Law exactly. um, appointed. And she she's released not a, a woman of color. She released a cookbook called Pow Wow Chow. Like, uh, we're not going to forget yeah. who Warren yeah, was, yeah. right? But, and the other thing is, she did not run a su- successful campaign. It's important to say that. She came yeah. third in her home state. That is a huge blow, you know? Yeah, but not to get caught up on Warren and... Well, what I want to say, right, my analysis there is she offered a solution that was not a threat to the elite class, Uh right? Her reformist approach was very much within the realms of the game the elite class was already playing. Because of that, the whole idea that she was ever a front-runner was incredibly manufactured by the media. She was given a ton of uh, screen time by the media ton of positive articles about how she was going to be the new Bernie Sanders and create the same energy that he did in 2016. 
I think personally that harmed Bernie's campaign a little bit, not as much as it is made out to be by a lot of leftists, because I don't think she really had that big of a base of support. She had a very loud and digital base of support. She was all over the Twitter sphere, but that's not an accurate example of real life. It's just an example of how, in my opinion, this shows that a reformist approach will never really work because it's yeah. just playing the game that they're already playing. They know she's not a threat to them, so they propel her as an alternative to a real threat like Bernie Sanders. I think it's really... Um, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are just two really good examples which help us illustrate this point yeah. but on a broader level right like moving beyond Sanders and Warren we can really see these two different approaches offering very different results and like like they both go into it um, in different ways right like the reform approach is more of top-down change yeah. where the hierarchies persist um, and it's still exploitative, and it can be understood as concessions of the ruling class that they're willing to. Yeah, they're like they're just gonna chip away a little bit of their privileges and their power, and not really achieve anything. Meaningful. Yeah, and more than, less than that, they don't chip away their own power, right? They return some of us pow our power to us. Yeah, because like, power comes from the people. And it's of course, to it's that. been taken from, and then it is returned to as a concession. Uh -huh. So if there are beginning to be class-like disruptions then we'll legalize gay marriage, you know? Yeah. And it'll slowly be conceding some points without changing the fundamental structures that make it oppressive against those groups in the first place. Yeah, without affecting the real base superstructure relationships that exist in a capitalist society. Sure. Whereas the alternative approach that we are both advocating for, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be a revolution. It can be less radical than that. Like, this approach is anything that isn't operating with, from a liberal capitalist framework, right? Yeah. Um, it can be anything from just union strikes, which stop the flow of um, ex labor exploitation that occurs in factories, yeah. to climate protests that we've all marched last year following Greta, right? If you're willing to oppose the, um, the system, from like an independent platform that isn't provided to you from the system, this is the, the way. Um, That's the way yeah. that I, I truly believe to be, right? Yeah. I, I think what we're going to be seeing a lot is this discussion over, especially amongst Bernie Sanders supporters, right? Yeah. Because even though I'm not going to be voting in the American, I'm not an American, you're not an American, yeah. right? But we have asked ourselves, would you vote for Joe Biden? if you had to, like when it comes to Trump or Joe Biden, who would you vote for? Uh -huh. It's a question that I think a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters and non-Americans will be asking themselves. What is the path forward without something like Bernie Sanders? Without a way to vote in change, what do you do, right? And that's when it kind of comes down to, do you really believe in incremental change? Do you really believe that we can slowly and steadily change the system from within itself? Because I think all evidence dictates that it's not going to happen that way. Uh -huh. It's never worked that way. And even history um, is on your side on that move because historically, Thank you, you, can, you can never really... Um, like all structural change has been radical change. Um, like change does not come from within itself, yeah. right? Like you cannot get... Yeah, fundamental transformations by operating within the limited structures that a system itself provides for you. Of course. Yeah. Um, that's why democracy um, in a neoliberal framework will always be flawed. It's a fallacy. Yeah. And I think these are some of the things that we'll be talking about more in our future episodes of for the podcast, sure. right? Definitely. Like, I look forward to covering a lot of topics. I definitely want to cover revolution and the history of revolution in more detail, right? Yeah. Because I think I think going into this, I want to make it very clear, right? The idea of revolution is something that is often kind of laughed at. At least I used to be laughing at it a lot. Yeah. Laughing at it from two very different perspectives, right? First, the perspective of revolutionary series. Like, what are you talking about? That's, that's kind of crazy. Whatever. Yeah. 
and now it's the idea of can we even get enough people to care to mobilize like can we get people to get off their ass and give up the luxuries that they do live within to mobilize and act there's a lot of things that are scary and weird and complex about the idea of a revolution uh-huh so i'd like to touch on that a and lot. i think even for me personally i keep on going back and forth over how i feel about it yeah because um th- partly because i am an early leftist um, it, like in my ideological progression, I'm in a very early phase where I'm just beginning to embrace um, leftism. Yeah. Um, heck, I like a year ago, I was um, I, I was in the Warren train. I was in the Buttigieg train. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really get any darker than that. But yep. um, like, I guess this is why we're doing this podcast, right? Like to help us understand, like to help us sort of track our own journey through leftism yeah. as we develop ideologically and help others who are in similar positions themselves to like make more of a to take more of a formative stance on this. Yeah, and to make sense of the world around them. And hopefully the people who are listening will help us make sense of the world around us. Yeah. And help us fill in the spaces that we have blank. And please call us out on any bullshit that you hear from our sides cuz again, we're both like just college kids going at it um and we don't really have as much lived experience as we would like to and we would love to have more of a um more voices um, reach out to us and like share their experiences with us. Well, I guess that is episode one. Um, I guess that's the end of episode one. We did it. Um, yeah. I'd say before we wrap up, I want to say that we are recording on Wurundjeri land of the people of the Kulin Nation. I just want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, pay respects to elders, past, present, and future. Uh, I think it's important to always keep in mind whose land it is that you're on. Yeah. Especially if you live in a post-colonial nation. I say post-colonial, but that's kind of a, a weird statement because yeah, we're still in never, colonialism. You're never post-colonialism. Yeah, it never. And ended. Australia has a terrible history with it, right? And which I'm which I'm really excited to cover at some point. Oh, really. very much so. But it's important to maintain an understanding of where you are, whose land it is, and why that is important. And with having said that, uh, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ray, for having me. Thanks, man. Um, this was lovely. This was lovely. I look forward to doing this more often.